Dear Jesus, thank you for this amazing opportunity we have to gather together today to be inspired by um, your life, the way you taught uh, your story through the scriptures, especially through the gospels this morning as they're uh, showing us an image of God that we clearly see through you and don't see somewhere else. We're just asking that as we listen today, as we dialogue, as we share and wrestle and ask questions together that each of us would come away with a fresh understanding, a clearer picture of who you are, what that love looks like, and how that changes the bigger picture, both day-to-day and even future events that seem to bring up questions and like loom in the distance and even cause controversy. We just ask that through just this time together that we feel closer to you and to one another in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, welcome to Bloom. It's good to see you all this morning. Um, the last four Sundays, um, we've been going through, uh, or three Sundays, I guess this is the fourth one, how Jesus really changes the way we should interpret scriptures, read them, and not just scripture, but even live out uh, the good news of the gospel, live out being a follower of Jesus in our lives. He reinterprets scripture. He gives clarity to God. Um, The scriptures say that uh, he's the clearest picture of we have of what God is like, that in Jesus the fullness of God lives in bodily form, and that he embodies and models all that God intends humanity to be. And so we have this amazing example, but he definitely uh, seems to bring clarity to confusion or contradict some things that are said other ways in scripture. And so if he's our clearest image of God, then he is showing us a clearer picture of something we didn't understand, something we misinterpreted, something we didn't know. Maybe society's context held them back. Maybe it was just uh, who knows what. Uh, so the first week we looked at the Jesus lens. Um, two Sundays ago we looked at how he spoke in parables more than anything else and how parables are not like commands and that they're more of a metaphor, an invitation into finding the answer together, to dialogue, to wrestle with it. It, it is ever-expanding. Parables, you can find more and more meaning as you dive into them and look at them more and find these, these spots where we can apply them to life and we can uniquely apply them to our situation or community or society. They're ever-expandable because it's this, it's this story that has deeper truth hidden in it that we get to wrestle with. Uh, and last week, we talked about this idea that Jesus brings in through a parable of loving your enemies and how really that parable shows us that this is also a picture of God, how he views everyone this as um, even someone that would be an enemy of Jesus or God. There's, there's love, there's even more. We, we looked at Matthew 5 where it talked about um, if someone steals from you or hurts you, that uh, like if it stole a coat, he's like, give him another coat. If it if they're taking from you, give them even more of what they're taking. If they're, like, it seems to when someone hurts God or comes against him, he pours out even more love at it. He doesn't get defensive. He's not angry. He's actually layering that on more. And he gives us this example of this is what perfection of following God looks like to us, is loving your enemies. But it also gives us this image that God loves everyone. And so we went through four different ways that loving your enemies really stood out with Jesus Well, we went through three, and today's the fourth. This is like part two from last week, although you didn't really have to be there to get it. Uh, Jesus refrained from cursing Israel's enemies. Um, The prophets before him seemed to, you were for Israel, 
or you are going to have lightning bolts come and you are just in trouble. And Jesus does not show any signs of that and even um, goes as far as quoting some things and leaving out the cursing. Um, he tells stories that inspires empathy for the enemies and even like hated foes. He's, he's bringing clarity to how we should look at them and bringing a humanity and uh, a feeling and a togetherness that these same qualities can be found somewhere else. He blessed his enemies even as they murder him. We see him on the cross just forgiving everyone who's there, cheering on the death of, of himself. He's there to just pronounce forgiveness and love in the toughest situation. So he models this for us. And then today we're looking at how Jesus really interprets Scripture by filtering out violence and retribution and really changing some stuff. What did he talk about? What did he quote from the Old Testament? What does this change about how we view God? Because that's a, this whole thing is not... We've looked at all these different things from an us perspective, how I should live because of this. But this time we're looking at it in a perspective of how do we view God? How does that change how we relate to scriptures, read them, follow them, dialogue about them? If Jesus is a lens that brings clarity to certain things, and we look at his stance, his lifestyle, his sayings as higher than something else, then what, is, what changes about that? Um, So that was like a little intro. I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, I was super confused about the God of the Old Testament who would just wipe out nations of people, right or left, like no problem at all. Kids, women, what it just, if they're not for us, it's not that they're against us, it's they shouldn't even exist on the earth any longer. And there's this wipeout. And it just doesn't, didn't seem to click. There's something that seemed to be so far off from the New Testament Jesus that we see. And I have heard the worst examples of why this is throughout the years. Like, oh, well, God was really angry and that anger was satisfied with Jesus and now he's not anymore. And so it's like God was a schizophrenic and is now medicated because of Jesus because he beat the pulp out of something so bad that that anger is no longer there. And if I was a counselor sitting with a couple and one of them told me, oh, yeah, I beat my anger out of them. It's no longer there anymore. You'd be like... We need to separate you two. You should not be together. We're going to find some safety. Yet this is, we have no problem casting this image out. Oh, this is totally God, right? Like, without doing the math and being like, doesn't this trickle down to trouble, like, for all of us? Like, when, when does it come back? When am I the one to be beaten? Oh, that's hell. That's the end times when there actually is more anger again. Whoops, he's not not angry anymore. It's just been saving it for at the end when... Not just for a tiny period, but for an eternity, he will punish with, uh, and it just doesn't seem to click. And especially when you look at Jesus, and so then you start getting into a little better theology, and like, oh, Jesus is bringing clarity to stuff that was confusing. We talked about last week how the loving your enemy, we even see it in um, books like Ruth or in Jonah, and how God is, is trying to show these people, it's not about these mass killings, it's not about hurting people or my enemy. I'm not for destroying nations as we thought I was. Um, and today that, that brings us to um, some of the scripture that Jesus quotes back to and references. When he quotes the Old Testament, um, more than anything else, he quotes the Psalms. And he does it 11 times. 11 quotes back to the Psalms. The Psalms is journal entry, poems, songs on a vast range of human emotion. 
when we're angry, we want God to deliver us from our enemies, even if that means thunder and lightning. When we're doing great, he loves me more than anything else. It's, it's actually beautiful because it's, I love that it's in there because it shows the full range of human emotions. Uh, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 10 times, Isaiah 8, and Exodus 7 times. Um, but I want to start with Isaiah, and this isn't something that Jesus is referencing to. This is Isaiah prophesying about Jesus. Because I think, I think we need to see how backwards we can get things, even when we have all the answers sometimes. Even when the picture is clear, we can still make mistakes and not understand what's going on. And so... Um, Isaiah 9.6 says, Hope of all hopes, dream of all dreams, a child is born, sweet, breathed, a son is given to us, a living gift. And now, with tiny features and dewy hair, he is great. The power of leadership and the weight of authority will rest on his shoulders. His name, his name will be known in many ways. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Dear Father Everlasting, Ever-Present, Never-Failing, Master of Wholeness, Prince of Peace. Prince of Peace. This is Isaiah prophesying of this Messiah, this Savior to come. This, the um, Israel at the time is waiting for this um, Savior to show up and save them from the oppression that they're having. At the time of Jesus, it was Roman occupation. It's been many different things throughout the year, but they're always expecting God to show up and just make them on top of the world again. But this prophecy shows up, and all of a sudden... It's prophesied that Jesus is going to be called Prince of Peace. Isaiah 53.9, he says, He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. And so he's prophesying again about this Messiah. And in this one he says, He had done no violence. He's Prince of Peace. He's done no violence. We look at Matthew in the life of Jesus, and he even tells us, he says, I say this, don't fight against the one who's working evil against you. Or the New International Version tells you, don't resist an evil person. All of a sudden, we see passive Jesus, this loving, not a warrior coming in to destroy every nation. But we see it even being foretold, being prophesied from Isaiah. He's like, this one that we've been waiting for to come is going to be the Prince of Peace. He's not going to have any violence with him. Yet, Isaiah still, um, we're going to get into a a passage where there's still, he's thinking that uh, it's just gloom and doom. Anyone against God is is not there. He's got these prophecies about what's to come in the image of God, and yet he still has this idea that God is something else. And we're going to look and we're going to see Jesus quote back to Isaiah, and he's going to leave out the parts that are wrong, and he's going to reinterpret them. And that's what we're looking at today, what that says, what that changes. This message of peace, this message of loving your enemies explodes onto the scene with Jesus because he shows up and at first he's trying to convince, or he's not really trying to convince, he's just loving and people are becoming followers and convinced of what he is and... um, the religious elite of the time are angry. They're not sure who this rabble-rouser is who's standing up against their control because religion can be used as a tool so easily to control people. And they had the strings that were holding that control, and so they're mad when Jesus shows up. 
the disciples who are actually following him are confused because they think he's going to be like the God they were told about when they were kids. They thought he was going to be like Elijah and just burn down a village because uh, they thought Jesus was only interested in Jewish people and they didn't want him in their town. And he's got to correct that notion and be like, I'm not about this again. We keep going over this. It's not this vengeance and this killing all my enemies. This is not what I'm about. And when he's saying I am, he's the clearest picture of God. He says, if you see me, you see the Father. This is not who God is, guys. One of Jesus' customary greetings was peace be with you. And we see that even taken forward into tons of the epistles then, this greeting at the beginning, this, this peace being an announcement to anything that seemed to be stamped with Jesus' name. And he teaches these, what seem like radically new uh, ethics that have never been uttered before. Um, like we looked at last week, loving your enemies, blessing those who curse you, doing good to those who hate you, praying for those who spitefully use you or per- persecute you. He seems to um, just keep redefining what it looks like to not just be a follower of Jesus, but what it looks like to be us. We're created in the image of God. This is who we are. Where this goodness resides on the inside of us, this DNA of our creator is in every one of us. And so we see in Matthew 5 and 6, Jesus starts the Sermon on the Mount. He sits down, a large group of people on this hillside, and he starts preaching to them. Um, And in this sermon... He quotes portions of Hebrew scriptures and then he proceeds to explain in words that were counter to the average Jewish belief of what those things meant, what, the, what, what these meant to God, what these meant to life now, how we should really be looking at these. And so there was tons of stuff in there that was just, everyone thought it meant this and Jesus is like, it's so much bigger than that. To the point where even some of it he's making it harder where he says, you know, in scriptures it says, don't murder, but he says, I don't even say horrible stuff about your brother or your enemy. Don't even be mocking and saying that they're a fool because this is the same. And he starts taking it from this just black and white, don't murder, oh, I did that, but I can just think and speak and do whatever. And he takes it relationally and he's like, this, this is more than this. This is a relationship we're talking about. Your words, your actions, your feelings towards someone, it's the same. It's murder in your heart. If you're committing He says, don't commit adultery, which is easy, and all of you think you're doing that, but if you're lusting after each other's stuff or possessions or husband, wife, whatever, he's like, you're missing the point of all this. Again, he's taking it back to relationship. At the same point, though, the religious elite who are using these checkboxes as, oh, I'm the best among us because I don't do these things, is saying, oh, this isn't enough. If you really want to become righteous on your own, you've got to do it even, even if you think bad. You're messing up your righteousness. And all of a sudden, they're like, whoa, 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 who could do that? Who could ever meet all these demands? And at the end of 5 and 6, he goes into the, just trust me, though. He's like, don't be worrying about what is going to happen tomorrow. He's like, trusting me is enough for a whole day's effort for you. That's, that's, that's enough work to do. Just trust that I've got this. Because you on your own obviously don't. On your best day, we could micromanage it down to being like, yeah, it's still stinky, and nasty, but he's like, I've got something here. I've got something better. And he's got this audience riveted because he's taking truths that they held dear and expanding them and making them bigger and some even flipping completely upside down. 
He makes the rules even harder for some, but he ends with this, but really it's about trusting God. He's like, the, if you look at the birds, they, they, they're not toiling or stressed out or freaking out. They've got just what they need. They're beautiful. They're clothed, and God takes care of them. And he's like, we need to see ourselves that way. If we start looking at these gospel texts and look at when Jesus talks about or quotes these Old Testament scriptures, something that really isn't, can be foreign to some of us because it was such the prevalent teaching of the day and what they, what they knew so well. Uh, but when we start looking at that, like what is he quoting and why? Who is he talking to? And what's the purpose here? We really start to get a different picture and a different image of God. But today is part two to loving your enemy. And so how does this all jive together? What are we talking about here? How does Jesus really reframe some of these prophecies or these Torah teachings to change things about God? In Luke chapter 4 is the one big one that I want to talk about today and then get into what this changes for us. Um, You've got a group of people listening to him, and he says, "The spirit of it, he, Jesus stands up in the synagogue, he unrolls the scroll. So this is a regular, high religious gathering. He walks to the front, he unrolls the scroll of Isaiah, and he reads from it, and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Why? Because the Eternal One has designated me to be the, his representative to the poor, to preach good news to them. He sent me to tell those who are held captive that they can now be set free, and to tell the blind that they can now see He sent me to liberate those who are held down by oppression, and in short, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim that now is the time. This is the jubilant season of the Eternal One's grace. This is a quote from Isaiah, a direct quote. He's he's reading from the scrolls. After he reads this, it says he, he rolls back up the scroll, and he sits back down, as any teacher would do, and then you would explain what you just read is what's going to happen. But to those who are listening here, they're getting pretty excited by the teachings of Jesus. He is bringing out new truths. It's obvious in this text that these people are like, man, this guy is. He opens his mouth and it's like, honey, this is fantastic stuff. And then he reads this prophecy. But why is this prophecy exciting? Because to these people, they're being beaten down by the Romans again. Uh, This is completely the opposite lifestyle as we have because we are probably the modern-day Romans. But it is a group that is oppressed by those who have all the power, all the weapons, all the money, all the authority. And they are still believing for this savior, this, this part of God to come and show up and just flip it around again. Make them on top, get rid of all this trouble. And this passage is the beginning of a prophecy that, that God is going to come back and do this. And then that changes about this passage here is that right after this sentence the spirit's upon me to proclaim that now is the season of the eternal one's grace the next line in this prophecy is for our enemies it will be like a day of god's wrath and so they're like it's here shit there's probably like cheering like yes finally we've been waiting for the thunder and the lightning and we're going to go home it's in the rooftop and just watch fire rain from heaven they're like it's he he quoted it And he doesn't just quote it when he sits down. He says, this is fulfilled in your presence today. So they're like, yes, this is happening. Finally, the vengeance we've been waiting for. And because this is the prophecy he's reading from. Yes, it's the day for the poor and all that. And I'm going to love you if you're on the inside. And if you're on the outside, 
To our enemies, it will be a day of God's wrath. And everyone listening would have known what came next. They don't need Jesus to say it. This is what they've been hoping for. This is, like, finally the... No, I won't even say that. That's getting too far. Um, So he starts this, he rolls it up, and he sits down and tells them that these words from the Hebrew Scriptures are being fulfilled in their hearing. But then he starts to define the teaching, just as any teacher would do when he sat down. And instead of giving the answer they were hoping for that was coming next, he leaves out the God's judgment and wrath, and instead he gives a different answer to what's going on. In Luke, um, so he's quoting Isaiah 61 here. He omits the day of God's vengeance. uh, And all of a sudden, he... In verse 25, he says, Think back to the prophet Elijah. He's like, There were many needy Jewish widows in his homeland Israel when the terrible famine persisted there for three and a half years. Yet, the only widow God sent Elijah to help him was an outsider from Zarephath. And he says, It was the same prophet Elisha. There were many Jewish lepers in his homeland. But the only one that he healed was Naaman, an outsider from Syria. He starts showing that God just isn't interested in us versus them. Who's on the inside? Who's on the outside? Who's God's enemies and who's not? You were hoping for this king that was going to come and slaughter all your enemies and bring justice back and put you on top. But all of a sudden, he shows up as someone who is offering the same love to your enemies. And not just showing that he's doing that now and it's the season for that, but he's been doing that ever since the prophet Elijah and Elisha. Your hero prophets, your hero guys of fame that we've looked at, we see God loving outsiders and he's redefining what this prophecy is talking about and what he's there to do. It says, The people in the synagogue become furious when he said these two things. So it's not just like, ooh, is there confusion? What's he doing? Oh, no, they know exactly what Jesus just did. It's a drop the mic, like, oh, what did you just do? They became furious when he said these things. They seized him, took him to the edge of town, and they were going to push him off the edge of a cliff where the city was built. And they would have pushed him off and and killed him, but somehow Jesus just passed through the crowd and got away. Like, just slippery, just like, I'm going this way, and gets out of it. Uh, But that's the kind of wrath. Like, they were hoping... Like, you were so excited for, finally, we're going to be on top again. Finally, our enemies are going to pay for all this stuff. This guy seems to know what he's doing. We're following him now. He seems like the Messiah. We don't, the group that is listening to this is a mixed group. Some followers, some not, some very curious on the inside. Some vehemently oppose their listening. And he shatters this conception of what God's coming to do and what this prophecy is talking about. And he, he, he opens it up to... I've been loving people and using people and healing people that have been your enemies for all time. So stop looking for the day of vengeance for all your enemies because God isn't about that. He's about loving enemies. He's about heaping more blessings upon people that are even trying to hurt him. And these guys cannot handle this revelation or even accept it. It's just this is blasphemy. This is not the God I'm waiting for or serve. And they grab Jesus and drag him to the edge of town. Um, Jesus is filtering out violence and retribution 
And he shows that God is bigger than what we thought he was. That maybe what we thought was going to happen or hope was going to happen is completely the opposite. And all those people that we were hoping would get something because they were evil or mean or just looked different, all of a sudden, they're children of God and he loves them and there's something bigger going on and he wants to use them and help them and heal them. Oh my God. And in my own heart, who are the people in my life that if God's loving them or blessing them or all of a sudden I see that they're loved just as much as me, that it stings a little bit, that all of a sudden I'm the one that's like, oh, you did not say that about fill in the blank. Whether it be, uh, after last Sunday I heard some of you talking, like I was trying to figure out who my enemy would have been and like I, I like my neighbors and my coworkers and then, but you start filtering it down to like politicians or musicians or TV stars and oh yeah, there's definitely some people that I definitely would not be able to be the good Samaritan for or something else. And so there's, there's someone there, something. But the bigger thing here that we need to ask ourselves is not just how does this change how we live our lives, because again, this is not the perspective we're taking from this teaching. But what does this say about God that we've gotten wrong? What is our, our questions I want to... Oh, shh, where did that slide go? Dang it, hold on one second. This is definitely necessary. And it looks like I deleted it. Well, I will just have to read it then. Um, how does this change our perception of God if he really, if there are no insiders and outsiders, if he loves everyone, if it is this, we always thought God was just ready to destroy his enemies. And he's showing us it's something different. Now Isaiah is quoting at the beginning of the lesson today, he's quoting or he's prophesying about this Messiah to come that will be called the Prince of Peace who will never have any violence, yet he still prophesies about, like, but our enemies will have God's day of wrath. He's still, he's saying one thing about the Messiah coming, yet at the other hand is like, and it's still going to bring the thunder, you know? Like, and then like, oh, shoot, it didn't bring the thunder. Oh, I did quote that. Like, I didn't pay attention to what I was saying. Now think about Christianity today. We talk about how loving Jesus is, and like, oh yeah, he's a new picture of God, but there's this, immense weight of wrath that just needs to be unleashed at some point. You're like, maybe, but maybe, again, we're getting it just as wrong as they did. And there's not this immense weight of wrath that's just waiting to be unleashed, that God has just got pent up and he's just got to explode with it at some point. And it's just going to be this eternity of fire and damnation. And maybe, just like Jesus' other teachings, when he talks about if you live a lifestyle like this, it's, 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 you're, you're going to end up in... Um, in hell is what's translated in English, and we have a picture of hell, but in their time, the word for hell is, uh, what's the name of the? Uh, they're garbage heap, where they burn the trash. And maybe it was just like 90% of Jesus' teachings are parables. Maybe there's an analogy there that's like, if you live for just yourself and just your carnal desires and you don't think about someone else, maybe that life is just going to look like burning trash. Maybe it's just going to be crap. And maybe it wasn't actually a foretelling of this secret anger that Jesus forgot to tell us about when he showed up to give us the best image of God. And he's filtering out all this violence we thought was going to show up. And he's quoting scripture, the infallible truth that there's no mistakes in by leaving out stuff and reinterpreting it with the correct answer. And you're just like, I don't know about you, but for me, I was like, what? Jesus didn't, like, all those translations, he's not saying everything verbatim. They're there can be changes and twists and 
And I just didn't know the Jewish customs, so I didn't realize what he was doing here. He is changing the story, the image of God, and what's going on. And so how does that change things for us? We can't get pissed when it turns out that God's bigger than we thought it was. And that those we thought on the outside may be loved and being blessed and healed and wooed just as much as we are. It's easy, this teaches us, that it's obviously easy to have the answers right in front of us and still have an incorrect picture of God and what it looks like and what we can expect to come. And even this prophet Isaiah, we see almost quoting two different opposing prophecies of what was to come because of context, because of storyline, because of what they've been thought and what they believed for. And Jesus says, hey, it's just a little different than that. If I was Jesus in the synagogue, I would have been dancing around being like, you idiots got it wrong. And he's just like peacefully sitting there like, hey, they're the ones getting vehemently angry at what they're listening to. So what stirs inside of you? When do you see something flare up when you're listening to a message about Jesus, when you're listening to a Bible verse, when you're listening to something, when you're thinking about how to live this out? What are your little hot buttons? You're like, whoa, but there's that. And Why is it stirring up like that? Can we pause? Can we take a step back? Is there any restructuring Jesus gives us about this? Does his image magnify this feeling I'm feeling right now, or does it seem to fly contrary to who Jesus is? Is there one verse that you're holding on to because someone drilled it into your head since you were five years old, but there's this verse, and it's like, yeah, but there's Jesus, and his whole life is love your enemies, don't be picking up swords and stabbing each other. Like It's, it's over and over and over and over again, and not just... His words, but when he's actually quoting scripture, when he's pulling back Hebrew texts, he's filtering out this violent God that we thought was coming and showing us an ever-expanding love, appreciation, a healing of our world that is around us and an invitation to join him in that process. How does this change our perception of heaven or hell or the afterlife or even the kingdom of God that's here among us now? I'm just amazed at how many, how these uh, newspapers find these ministers to put online when there's hurricanes or something else, be like, see, God is pissed. And then they give a reason why God is pissed. Because we legalized gay marriage, or we believed that global warming was a real thing, or who knows, like, the answers are crazy that, that come up uh, as the reason why God's angry. And yet, anytime there's a storm, if you want to be a horrible religious leader, let's blame God and get everybody afraid because fear is much easier to use than love. Yet Jesus doesn't come using fear. He's coming with something bigger. His tool cuts to the heart of the matter even deeper, but in this, this way that, that pulls out these wrong beliefs, this stony heart, this need for vengeance, and replaces it with something bigger. And we've got an option of how to react to this. We can either resist completely and drag Jesus off a cliff and be like, we're done with you. This is not what we believe. Or we can step back and be like, okay, this does change things. And that must be an easy reaction because the whole place, no one was like, maybe we shouldn't drag him out. It was like, yeah, let's do it. So a knee-jerk human response is to, to let this, yeah, this is, it can affect us. And so what do we do with that? How does it play out? Who's in and who's out? What does love really look like? What does God really look like and act like? Again, 
Um, I'm just going to bring up that one slide that had the four things from last week. Jesus starts showing us by refraining from cursing Israel's enemies. He's not this prophet that shows up that says, God's here for you, your enemies will be cursed and destroyed, just watch. He's telling story after story that's trying to inspire empathy towards the people that they had the hardest time with. Uh, He blessed his enemies and forgave them even as they're murdering him. And he, even as he's reading scripture, quoting the Torah, he is reinterpreting it for us. He is cutting and pasting so that people can see this is actually the truth that was hidden here, that we might have glossed over, that we might have missed. Paul tells us that, that throughout life, it's like we're seeing through a glass that's foggy. Like even what we have, it's, it's not this clear picture. And as we get closer and closer to God, and as when Jesus shows up again, we'll finally see this clear picture. And we will realize, it says, that we are made just like he is. And so when all the stuff settles, all the fights, all the sand, all the smoke clears, and at the end of all things, when we see God clearly, we'll realize that each and every one of us, not the insiders, but are made in Jesus' image. And maybe we'll actually take his word seriously that says, it's done, that I died for all, once for all time, that everyone is invited into eternity with me. Again, we believe in free will at Bloom. It's not this, uh, I don't think, I think, Perfect love has got to offer people an opportunity to, to enter into an eternal existence if that's what's after this for us, like, and be invited in. But there's got to, perfect love has also got to be, let people go, eh, I'm not interested. And whether they wander or they cease to exist or what happens at that point, like, we have no idea because there is, a, there, there seriously is like 50 different examples of what it could look like. And they all seem to go in different directions. And so, but the one thing that's made clear in Jesus is how loving God is and that he's not in this for destroying his enemies, getting vengeance. It's a pouring a love on enemies even more than what they're looking for. And so, how does that change us? Uh, Let's go to discussion and see where this takes us. We don't have music today. Um... Uh, so we can dialogue a little bit more if you want to. And it looks like I went over a little bit too. But Jesus, we just ask that you, um, yeah, uh, from the perspectives given by me today, that you just help us to just read the Bible differently, Uh, to read it with an open heart to see, like, is Jesus reinterpreting something here? Is he giving us a different image, maybe something we've gotten wrong? And have a soft heart for those areas that we need to learn, we need to grow, we need to expand our acceptance, our love, our graciousness. We just ask that as we follow you, you're just changing our hearts and changing this community into one that, is, that speaks um, just joyfully of your amazing grace and love. Uh, just help us to have an amazing discussion and time together the rest of our time this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.